0: This is Daniel Fagella, Head of Research at Emerge Artificial Intelligence Research. You're listening to the AI in Business podcast. In the three years it's been running, one of the most popular articles in our AI Power series is a very recent article called You Don't Want What You Think You Want. This is an article talking about the future of programmatically generated everything, when we can live in virtual worlds where... Simply with our words or with text, we can conjure forth whatever media we want of whatever kind. It sounds futuristic. It sounds like science fiction. The article certainly argues that it's not, and that it may just be right around the corner. Lots of great conversation about that article, but the article itself wouldn't be possible unless there were inspiring technologies in the world And unless I personally was able to connect with some of the sparklingly brilliant minds behind those technologies. In case you've lived under a rock, or maybe you just don't have a Twitter account, DALE2 is a technology developed at OpenAI to turn text into images. Whether you want a picture of a Gothic castle in the style of Salvador Dali, or you want a picture of a Labrador retriever juggling bowling pins, DALE2 can get it all done for you in any possible style. The outputs are remarkable. And just since the time of recording this episode, there have already been new leaps and bounds in being able to go from text to video, which is part of the grander transition that I suspect we're going to be seeing in the years ahead. Our guest this week, who we're fortunate to have here, is Aditya Ramesh, who created Dalle, and he's also the co-creator of Dali 2. In my opinion, there's essentially no one better to speak about this world of programmatically generated everything than one of the brilliant minds buying the technology that everybody is now talking about. In this episode, Aditya explores how Dalai 2 works. Obviously, a very technical person. He explains it in simple conceptual language that anybody can grasp. So if you want to get a sense of how is this even possible, you'll get a basic breakdown from Aditya. And importantly, he leaps immediately into near-term and kind of future use cases of the technology. How are individual users or even startups leveraging Dalai 2 today? And where does Aditya hope it goes? We talk a little bit about some of the good or maybe somewhat neutral places that this broad sweeping creative technology might head. But importantly, we talk about Aditya's idea of the creative co-pilot, how future creative work will involve ongoing collaboration with artificial intelligence under the guise of a human's objectives and goals. It's a very compelling vision, one that I think is important for more people to be thinking about. And again, it's great to be able to hear it From the horse's mouth with Aditya. In the outro to this episode, I'll mention a little bit more about sort of the bigger picture of these technologies and invite you to be part of the conversation, because we're certainly going to be covering a lot more of this in the future. Let's go ahead and fly into this episode. This was a very fun chat. This is Aditya Ramesh with OpenAI here on the AI and Business Podcast. So Aditya, welcome to the program.
1: Uh, Nice to meet you, Dan.
0: Yeah. Glad to have Thanks you here. Having... Of course, brother. Of course, of course. I've been following your folks' work over there with Dale adamantly for the last year or so and very, very interested in where things are headed. And we're going to unpack a lot of kind of the fun current use cases where this is taking us. But you're actually somebody who's behind the tech. You've been part of building this technology and bringing it to life. Give us a little bit of a perspective for those of us that maybe aren't Python experts. What made this powerful jump from the previous permutations of text to image to this really profoundly powerful technology uh, of DALL-E 2 what, what sort of allowed for what we're seeing today?
1: Yeah, I think the improvements that led to DALI 2 being such like a powerful system compared to DALL-E one are basically all algorithmic rather than scale. So for example, the use of diffusion as opposed to The previous method that was used to generate images in DALI-1, which relied more on like a token-by-token prediction procedure that was more similar to how the GPT systems work. And other innovations like the use of UnClip. So the use of the representation of Clip, which is a model that we released along with DALI-1 for learning visual features as a kind of an intermediate latent space for image generation.
0: In terms of simple analogies, we talked to Peter from the GPT-3 team, excellent interview, really sharp fella. And he made a great analogy, again, for those of us that don't live inside of Python, right? Those of us that live in the, the business world, but are interested in this technology. He had explained quite simply that on some level with GPT-3, training this the model on a tremendous amount of data and having it predict sort of next word, next phrase over and over for all kinds of different formats was a real part of the core of sort of, what got it to be capable. And that feels really counterintuitive, almost feels too simple, but that, that ended yeah. up being a big part of the breakthrough. Is there a similar simple to understand-ish analogy about this jump? You had mentioned how it's actually quite different from how GPT-3 operates at an algorithmic level. How would you describe sure. that to a layperson?
1: Yeah, so the way DALI-1 worked fundamentally is that just like how GPT-3 looks at all of the previous words in a sentence and predicts the next one, in succession one after another, DALI-1 looks at the caption and then predicts kind of blocks of the image starting from the top left corner and going to the bottom right corner one after another. And as you can imagine, that's not really close to how humans generate images. Like when we imagine an image, we don't imagine it piece by piece starting from the top left and going to the bottom right. So DALI-2 uses a process called diffusion, and the way diffusion works is first we we apply a corruption process to images where we take a clean image and then gradually apply small amounts of noise to the image until the end result looks like pure noise, sort of like when you turn on your TV and you just see static. So during training, DALI 2 sees noisy versions of images at many different noise levels, and it's trained to look at a noisy image and make it a little bit less noisy. And this is done for a wide range of noise levels including images that barely have any noise added to them, or images that have so much noise added to them that they're almost indistinguishable from pure noise. So once the model is trained to do this sufficiently well, we can start off with just pure noise and then apply the diffusion model many times in succession to gradually make the image less and less noisy. And at each step where it's trained to reverse one step of this corruption process, the model has to kind of fill in all of the details that could have been erased By one step of corruption, so it kind of undestroys an image from scratch, and it's pretty cool to kind of see an animation of this happening.
0: Yeah, I, I, you know, to be frank, I've seen a thousand Dali images. I mean, Twitter is full of them. There's entire accounts based a hundred percent on just Dali two imagery, but actually, the you know, video of the process happening, I I don't believe I've yet seen. So this is this does sound fundamentally different from what you'd articulated the way that Dali one operates. So It learns to extrapolate based on a caption and a slightly corrupted image, and then more corrupted, more corrupted, more corrupted, to the point where you just throw complete static at it, you give it the prompt, and then it is sort of pretending that it is doing the job of cleaning up that static and turning it into what the prompt is about.
1: Exactly, yeah.
0: Wild. Really interesting. I mean, I can imagine not writing Python myself, certainly not for a living, that there would be, we could imagine, a dozen ways to possibly skin this cat to go from text prompt to image. Was it self evident in some way that this was going to be the way? Or were you just trying a dozen of them and it just so happened that this seemed more promising?
1: Yeah. So before we started applying diffusion to text to image generation, Profile and Alex at OpenAI were investigating diffusion as an alternative method for image generation. And what they found is that. It's much more efficient, both in terms of the amount of training compute required to train the models, as well as in the number of steps required to generate the images. And one reason for this is, first of all, this process is kind of more natural in some ways, because what diffusion models end up learning is, you know, over the course of denoising, like a, a pure static, like an image that just looks like pure white noise the model will generate like a blurry approximation of what it's trying to generate at first and then gradually fill in all of the details over time. So this process kind of resembles what how a human might you know, design an image intuitively in that we first think of the global structure of the image, what it is that we're trying to draw, and then fill in all of the kind of finer details. The second reason is that with a model that predicts an image block by block, If you're trying to generate like a big 1K by 1K image or potentially even larger, you know, you need to generate a lot of blocks in succession. Whereas with the diffusion model, even if you're generating a high res image, the whole image is kind of generated in parallel.
0: Got it. Okay. And so you said they were experimenting with this almost as an alternative method, but it just so turned out to be potentially the much better method. Yeah. Yeah. And who knows where we're going to be three years from now, what kind of new backup strategy might end up being astronomically better in terms of use of compute or quality of output or what have you. But this is cool to understand a little bit of the the trajectory of the technology and what got us to the impressive images that we see now. Those of you who are listening in and you haven't Googled Dale 2 images and just seen the wide array of things, it's pretty crazy. And Aditya, we're about to get into some examples here. I mean, I've seen so many different ones. And you've, you've undoubtedly seen oodles yourself. I mean, people typing their favorite painter, you know, whether it's Picasso or, you know, Monet or something, and then giving them some obscure modern topic, you know, and giving it a color palette and just putting it all in one big goofy prompt that just seems so ill-written and so kind of sloppily stated, but then having it produce extremely impressive work, sometimes hard to distinguish from, from, you know, very strong trained artists. In terms of interesting use cases on your side, what are some of the fun things that you've seen happen with this technology since it's been loose in the world?
1: Yeah, many of the use cases we've seen over the past weeks totally surprised us. And in general, what we're seeing is Dali is becoming sort of a creative co-pilot, similar to how Codex is a co-pilot for programmers. And, you know, so there's a few cases like this where, you know, artists can... Use DALI as a creative co-pilot, not only for prototyping ideas that they have before actually going out and physically building something or painting something, but we've seen use cases outside of art that are pretty compelling, too. So, for example, one of them that I heard about is we onboarded a couple who recently started a restaurant in Miami. And one of them is a really good cook, but he doesn't know exactly how to plate the items on his menu. So, what he did is he just typed in the descriptions of the food items that he wanted to serve. And he liked the images from Dali so much that he's now using those as the inspiration for plating all of the items on his menu. So, that was a total surprise.
0: Wild. So, and when you say plating, again, for those of us that don't work in restaurants, I presume it, you know, let's say we make a certain kind of noodles with pork and, you know, a side of spinach or something. How do we? put it on the plate. In other words, is the spinach in the middle and the pork's kind of like draped over it in some kind of a very fancy looking way? Is, is this what we mean by plating here?
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Sure. Okay, got it, got it. So yeah, so in this case, you know, he's sure he uses the images to represent, you know, how he's plating it, but he's actually using it as inspiration to be able to serve this food. And we might even imagine some gigantic restaurant chain doing similar ideas, thinking of all kinds of new cool ways that they could plate their food. What are some other interesting things that you've seen kind of outside of these art examples?
1: Yeah. Another is just fashion. So suppose that you want to try on clothes without actually wearing them. You can just take a picture of yourself and use in painting to kind of erase the region of the image of the shirt that you're wearing. Type in a description of the shirt that you would like to see. And just look at all of the examples that come up, and uh, I've seen like pretty compelling examples of this online.
0: Now, this is actually somewhat interesting. So, the idea of kind of generative fashion—I think even with Dalle one, I remember seeing maybe something about this. But you know, being able to conjure up new designs for sneakers or new designs for cool-looking jackets or something like this based on some prompts. But what you're talking about is actually seeing what clothes look like on you. Is there some sort of, in terms of the API or whatever people get access to to use Dolly 2, I presume there's some kind of way to upload, okay, here's an image of me maybe wearing no shirt or maybe wearing a very tight shirt, and then I can provide it with some other kind of shirt image and say combine these two or me wearing this shirt or something along those lines. Is Is this a correct assumption of what's going on here?
1: Or rather, what you can do is uh, there's a feature Dali 2 has called inpainting, where you can upload an image, as you just said, and erase any part of the image. So, for example, if I upload a picture of a table and then I erase the part of the image above the table with a brush tool, I can type in what I want to see. So, for example, a vase of flowers. And then after I hit enter, the model will kind of fill in the part of the image that was erased, but with the uh, an object consistent with what. The caption that was provided. So we could do the same thing, but also for fashion as well.
0: This is, this is awesome. So yeah, I don't think I've actually seen that much of this sort of magic erasing feature here. But yeah, to be able to do the same thing with clothes, just kind of squeak out whatever you're wearing and say, hey, me wearing this other shirt or this other kind of garment or, or what have you. And you brought up an, an interesting concept that I'd like to spend some time unpacking here, this idea of a creative co-pilot. You know, in, in fashion right now, human beings really do have to generate sort of a pretty substantial number of the ideas. I presume today with the internet, people can hypothetically Google, you know, interesting designs for dresses or pants or shoes from the last 300 years and and have at their disposal a, a somewhat unlimited assortment, which is great. That's way better than we had 50 years ago, way better than we had 20 years ago. I mean, that's a it's a great way to kind of jumpstart the creative process. We might imagine now, with with tools like Dolly, they might have parameters, like they might have a couple selected images that represent part of the feel and the flavor of what they're looking for. But they might also enter a couple prompts, and then instead of sifting through 5,000 images that are somewhat relevant, they might be auto-generated 100 images that would be extremely on point for what they want to start for the particular garment that they're designing, or we might think an architect, the house that they're designing, or a logo designer, the logo that they're designing. Where do you see this creative co-pilot dynamic entering into the world? How, how do you help people understand what this might look like for all kinds of creative jobs, from writing code to designing a home?
1: Yeah, I think exactly what you said is one of them. So if you have kind of a vague idea of what it is that you want and some reference images, you can use Dali, for example, to upload one of the images, change one of the parts of the image using in-painting based on a caption. So let's say like, You have an image of a shoe that you like but you'd like to change one piece of it somehow then you can just erase that part of the image type in what you want to see and and get a new image and you know the ability to use language in this really flexible way to draw upon all of the body of kind of human knowledge of visual concepts that we have is really powerful so like it it definitely opens the door for kind of personalization of many different things including fashion
0: yeah it feels like there's a couple elements of this being beneficial. One is to your point, sort of drawing on this vast corpus of existing examples of kind of design concepts that we already have. Another seems to be the ability to potentially generate sort of new, new types of things, you know, things that that quite obviously haven't existed before. You know, it's cool to be able to say, okay, take this picture of me, erase my feet and then say that I'm wearing some particular kind of, Nike Air Force 1s from, you know, the year 2005 or something, I don't know. You know, that, that's really cool to be able to do. It's also cool to be able to completely conjure something that's never existed before. When you think about sort of the future of creative roles, there, there seems to be a potentially plausible argument. And I'll let you take this where you want, where you want to take it. There seems to be a reasonably plausible argument that let's say 20 years ago, you know, if you were or 40 years ago, if you designed shoes, you needed to be proficient with certain skills. Probably that involved a lot of drawing. Probably that involved the ability to comb through big paper books of different kinds of shoe designs, be able to identify, find, leverage these kind of physical resources that would give you reference examples. And maybe even you'd have to create physical mock-ups. You'd have to know how to cut fabric and things like that. So, you know, you've got to have design ideas and kind of a design mind, and then you've got to have the tools for the job. And 40 years ago, maybe it was those tools. Maybe, let's say, 10, 15 years ago, the tools would be different. The tools would be some, some sort of, I don't know, some, some Adobe tools or something like that, a lot of design online. Maybe, maybe there's even some, some 3D modeling tools you'd have to be rather proficient in. And If you want to realistically be able to design shoes, you'd also have to know how to search the Internet very efficiently and leverage those. We might imagine five years from now, Aditya, where to reasonably ha- have any real uh, possibility of, of being a successful designer of shoes you would have to be very good at leveraging prompts you would have to be very good at working with ai to take a concept and then have an iteration loop of ai generating what you need and then further provide prompts and have another iterative loop and be able to play this volleyball game with the algorithm and basically leverage what you've called creative copilot in an effective way it feels like that might be the next paradigm of what the efficient tool use of of you know shoe design might look like let me know If there's elements of that that you agree or disagree with, or if there's a different way that you'd like to explain it, because I want people to see the future here.
1: Yeah, I think that's definitely one direction that where things are evolving. In other words, that your capability is limited less by, you know, your technical ability to draw something or to kind of like build something with your hands, but more on just your ability to come up with the creative insight that's needed to create something really compelling. And these kinds of like flexible interfaces like Dolly where you can specify your thoughts and language and kind of explore ideas really quickly start to enable that.
0: So that's one element of it. And You've you've kind of framed it as as if maybe there's some other angles to think about. Are there any other sort of analogies or ways of thinking about the creative jobs of the future that that people should think of in addition to that example that I've just kind of dripped out there?
1: Yeah, so I guess you mean other than people just... Expressing kind of what their intents are in language and kind of like iterating in a feedback loop with AI.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think so. So, the the concept we've already talked about is I sort of know what I want and I'm able to play a first round of volleyball and basically bootstrap, jumpstart that initial ideation process very well with the right AI prompts. And then when I get those results, organize, collate those, and come up with another round of volleyball where I pound that ball back over the net in the right way back to the machine and get another productive iterative loop. The idea that basically anything, whether it's writing code, designing a logo, designing a home, the essentially required tool may be the ability to design those prompts, that 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 ability may be the core technical skill. Of course, maybe you will still need some real schooling in architecture and understand structures and physics and things like that. Maybe for shoes, you need to understand the durability of different fabrics, and there would still be other skills. But really on the technical side, mastering this kind of co-creation would really be the name of the game in terms of the technical abilities you you may need to develop. We're, I'm essentially asking sort of, are there things other than that, that might be important for people to understand about the future of creative jobs?
1: I think that's basically it. Like we're going to see kind of a lot of this happen in some of them being programming and other being art. I do think in addition to humans kind of using AI more as part of the creative process. We'll also see a lot of benefit come from kind of AI adapting to human preferences as well. So right now, the way the current systems are trained is they're just look at many examples of paired images and captions and are trained to kind of generate the images from the captions. And a lot of this is the reason why things like When you ask Dolly to generate something that's very beautiful as opposed to just plain, sometimes it results in better images, since it's just trained to kind of imitate what it sees online. So the default style will just be what images tend to look like online. So kind of fine tuning models to human preferences will be, I think, one area where we'll see a lot of.
0: Yeah we'll just do one or two other short questions here as we wrap up, but we're we're getting into some very interesting territory about where this technology is going. And, you know, as somebody who's been part of what's brought it here, you probably have a pretty decent idea about where it might go next. It sounds like one element here is tailoring it to human preferences. You know, we know from some interesting examples, you know, saying something like I am a very good painter or using the word beautiful, like you said in a prompt will, alter what it is that we put out. When you say tailoring to human preferences, I can imagine what you're saying there looking a few different ways. Here's one way it might look. We have a bunch of toggleable features. So if I'm designing architecture, instead of just having a goofy bunch of words, I I can actually select from maybe known architectural styles and maybe known material types or things like that. And I can really make sure that what's generated is actually going to show up the way I want it. In other words, we we build some kind of hard-coded categories that will narrow down what I want. Maybe for painting, I want it to be especially beautiful or romantic or whatever the case may be. Maybe those are categories. That's one way I imagine personalization might happen. Another way would just be learning from the human. If I'm getting prompts from Steve Jenkins 5,000 times, at some point, I know what Steve Jenkins means when he says, you know, tennis shoe, or when he says, stiletto or whatever the case may be. Let me know what you meant by personalization and and how this might look in the interface of the product.
1: Yeah. So both of those are, are definitely kind of directions where things could go. So if the model has seen a lot of examples of your particular style, then you could have the model kind of know what your preferences are by default or kind of know what your aesthetic profile is by default and sort of apply that to future generations so that You know the model behaves differently for different people and it learns based on what you want over time another direction things could go is just kind of like the model functioning as a conversational assistant so you know if you have a particular aesthetic style in mind for example some of it described using natural language some of it described using a collection of images that you already have you can imagine eventually interacting with the model might feel a little bit like you know, talking to a digital assistant that also happens to be able to generate images. And so you can just describe kind of everything that you have in mind using a combination of images and text, and then prompt it for kind of what you want to see next and kind of interact with the model in that way, sort of using dialogue.
0: Yeah, so playing these games of, you know, I've used this very goofy analogy of volleyball, but kind of going back and forth with the machine, in a way that's much more natural to how almost humans would have a discourse?
1: Yeah, Yeah. Exactly.
0: Yep, instead of sort of like, okay, well, I've got to type my prompt reply in this very particular way, You know, being able to just say, ah, you know, a little bit more like this, a little bit more like that, or what if we change it this way and being able to make it more iterative in real time in that sense.
1: Yeah, another thing we'll see, I think, is different sort of capabilities becoming available with these models. So right now with Dolly, we just have text-to-image generation in-painting, which I just described, and a feature called Variations, where you can upload an image and the model will kind of decompose the image into all of the essential concepts that make it up and then reassemble those concepts in different ways. So if you take a picture of a room with furniture in it, the model will kind of explore different layouts of that furniture in all of the variations that it generates. There's some more features that we are planning to release in the future as well, and some of these I've tweeted about. One of these is uh, textifs, which allows you to upload an image and then describe a before and after transformation using text. So, for example, you can upload an image of a house in Victorian style, and then you can start off with the initial caption being a house in Victorian style and the final caption being a house in modern style. And what the model will do is kind of transform the house while keeping all of the same color scheme and the, the hedger on the house and so on but converting it from like a a Victorian style to a modern style. So I think we'll we'll see more and more of these types of features that kind of like define new ways to interact with neural networks over the coming months and years.
0: Yeah. And I'm I'm outlandishly excited to see those developments come about and Twitter, for those of you tuned in, is a great place to see what's going on in kind of this programmatically generated world and in Dali's developments. Aditya, when I, Think about the future here as we sort of start to close out. I I can imagine a future, and I don't I don't think it's maybe one year, but maybe it's five years, maybe it's ten years, where where analog media really is I I don't wanna say irrelevant, but very much not the norm for almost anything. So right now, if if I were to poll a bunch of people fifteen years ago and I said, Hey, what percentage of your time is spent on a screen? it would probably be pretty high for certain jobs. It'd be quite high, actually. But if I were to pull them today, it would be even higher with mobile and with a lot of other jobs going remote and things like that. But you know, it was maybe already kind of high 15 years ago. If I pulled people 15 years ago and I said, what percentage of what you look at on that screen is conjured forth to you by artificial intelligence, the answer today would be much, much higher than 15 years ago, because Aditya, we have Netflix, we have Facebook, we have, you, know, you just mentioned Twitter. We have Twitter where the algorithm is sort of bringing forth what might be most relevant for us. And now in this case, it might be what the platform thinks is most relevant, what we're going to engage with, what we might enjoy, what might make us angry, whatever the case may be. But what we're experiencing on screens is increasingly conjured or brought to us by AI. Is it reasonable to suspect that whether we're looking to be educated, entertained, or otherwise, the bulk of that screen time might not just be ai Bringing us the thing that seems most relevant right now. Now I type into YouTube, I don't know, highlight videos from the 2002 Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu World Championships, and it brings me what it thinks are going to be the best videos. So that's kind of AI at work there. But that at some point, education, entertainment, or otherwise, it will be AI generating the material, uh, material that is more educative than anything that I could actually potentially find online because it's congealing the best elements, it's personalizing it to me, content that's more entertaining. Personalized to my preferences, conjured just to me, than anything I could find online, and where most people will want to spend most time with content that is hyper tailored entirely for their preferences. Let me know if you see this as viable or if you would push back against this, or if maybe you just have a nuanced perspective. I- I'd love your take on the future here.
1: I think that's definitely a future I'm hoping for. And I hope this type of personalization also makes people's experience online kind of more meaningful and productive so that rather than feeling like, you know, a platform is necessarily kind of like optimizing for your engagement. It's more about the human getting value out of their interaction with whatever tool that they're using.
0: Yeah. Well, I, it seems reasonable that we would have a number of groups of people here. yeah, Maybe some people would want to go into to eat the digital Lotus, if you will. That is to say, to, to just conjure forth whatever will entertain, distract, or be interesting for them in sort of a There's the hikikomori in Japan, right? So, you know, we have sort of that that cluster of human beings. There might be a very steroided version of that that can swim in hyper-personalized, you know, we might imagine explicit content here. We might imagine, you know, entertainment. We might imagine video games that are just so, so tailored for that. And if they want entertainment, maybe they'll dive into that. To your point, though, I would expect we would have large swaths of people who would adamantly not be interested in purely eating the lotus they would want a digital ecosystem entirely bent around helping them achieve their aims, whether that means becoming a senator, whether that means becoming a prominent architect, maybe with environmental design in mind or something like that, where everything that they touch is sort of helping to nudge them, inch them, develop skills, build them in the direction of kind of those goals. It feels like some people will go in one direction or another, or maybe a mix of both. Again, let me know if you'd agree with that, or or if you have kind of a different take about where our future might take us here.
1: I completely agree with what you said, like, there's definitely a lot of potential for like, many different kinds of, you know, personalization kind of manifesting in many different ways, one of which could just like, you know, we all know how kind of addictive TikTok can already be. And you can imagine a version of TikTok where the videos are like generated from scratch to kind of optimize for engagement beyond what's already possible. Or on on the other side of the coin, like, you know, Existing tools and workflows designed for productivity could be further enhanced, especially things like educational materials.
0: Big time, and I certainly hope that we get to see that other side of the coin. We've actually written a good deal about sort of thus far, Aditya. A lot of AI technology has been distractive in some way. You know, we think about YouTube, Facebook, etc. Not exactly mostly conjuring productivity. And by the way, I'm not blaming them. I'm not demonizing the companies right now. I'm just saying that that's kind of the case there might be an ecosystem of more ambitious or more self-directed kind of AI where, like you had said, we get more out of our education. We get more out of our productivity tools. We get more in the direction of kind of our goals. And it sounds like you're sort of hoping that we lean in that direction.
1: I, I hope so. Yeah.
0: Well, I am right there with you in my hopes out you. And I'm really glad we got to at least touch a little bit on where you think this stuff might be taking us. It is Pretty darn cool that you've been part of what's been able to bring us here thus far. So hopefully for those of you tuned in, this is a very technical topic brought down in relatively simple terms. And Aditya, I have you to give credit to for that process. So thank you so much for being able to join us on the show.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So that's all for this episode of the AI in Business Podcast. Very grateful to Aditya for being able to have this conversation and pick apart not only the near term, but a little bit of the future of this technology. I certainly hope to speak with him later about the farther future. As mentioned, one of our most popular AI power articles was called you don't want what you think you want. You can go to Google, you can type in e-m-e-r-j and then you don't want and you will find that article right away. It is all about a near-term future where humans can conjure whatever kind of media that they want for education, for entertainment, etc. and what that implies for the future of work and the human condition. The article draws on many quotes and many sources from the OECD to AI policy thinkers to startup thinkers etc. And it's intended as a jumping off point for a bigger picture conversation about folks involved in the business of AI. So again, you can Google EMERJ space you don't want into Google and you'll find the article pretty immediately. And because we're covering more of this topic in the near term, I would love to know your thoughts. If you have anything on social, you can go ahead and post your response to the article on Twitter, on LinkedIn, or feel free to just message me in a LinkedIn DM. Let me know what your thoughts are on these big picture trends. Let me know what your thoughts are on these big picture trends and how they might affect or maybe not affect The industry that you operate in. We're going to get into industry-specific coverage of this kind of creative AI applications in the future years, and it'd be great to get ideas directly from our listeners. Certainly value your perspective. And as many of you longtime listeners know, the editorial calendar that we build here for the AI and Business Podcast is based on feedback, reviews, direct LinkedIn messages from listeners like you. So thank you so much for being here. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Hope to have you as part of the conversation around the future of AI, and look forward to catching you next time here on the AI and Business Podcast.